welcome to the Institute for Conservation Leadership podcast, a conversation about leadership, strategy, and collaboration. I am Kurt Thompson, and today we'll be talking with Flip Haygood. Flip has had a long career with the National Park Service, the Student Conservation Association, and has most recently served for several years on ICL's board of directors. He and I met on a beautiful fall morning near his home on Capitol Hill. We sat outside and enjoyed a great cup of coffee at one of his favorite coffee shops, Port City Java at Eastern Market. You'll hear the sounds of a busy city in the background, but I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Well, Flip, uh, I'm glad you were able to join me today, and, and thanks for coming uh, and meeting me for, for a great conversation. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I'll start just by saying that, one, I thank ICL, and thank you personally, and Diane and the board for my board tenure. I am sunsetting this current board meeting uh, coming up here in a week, but I've had a, a good run with ICL, and uh, it's been a valuable volunteer experience for me and I count it as one of my three volunteer opportunities that I've had in my life that I probably value the most because it's a, it's different than the, the other two organizations uh, that I've invested most of my volunteer time, especially here within the last decade, uh, which kind of parallels my tenure with the ICL board. But I, I came to ICL because a friend of mine was formerly on the board. And as often the case, you recruit people that you know and people who are professionals that you work with. And when he came to me, at first I said, well, it's something I would consider, but I can't do it right now. I've got a couple of other things that I'm doing, and I was uh, doing a, a little consulting work myself. And so the conflict was a little great. But uh, after uh, I sunsetted from uh, a local board, I was uh, contacted again, and we started the dance of tenure for possibly being a, a candidate for boardship uh, with ICL. I think some of the reasons that they certainly uh, looked to me as a possible board member uh, centered around my not-for-profit executive leadership experience, which I was currently in as a senior vice president with the uh, Student Conservation Association, and then uh, did that job for, for 20 years, or, and prior to that had done 30 years in public service with the Department of Interior as my primary employee. I did a couple of years with the Treasury Department, but uh, that was uh, some time in the past. You had mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that the ICL experience was different than the other two. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about that. different. Uh, in the sense that it, uh, the, the jobs that I'd had had certainly afforded me a chance to have varied work experiences. And one of the reasons that the ICL, I thought, was a match, certainly for me, and I think I was considered, is that in my professional career, I'd always been in the human resource side of work as a primary element of my work, especially in the latter part of my public service career, where I was the director of education and training for the National Park Service and its 20,000 employees. So training and education and meetings management, facilitation, all of those kinds of uh, acumen were something that I lived with every day and certainly uh, matched well with the professional development and leadership development that ICL provides to community-based organizations uh, and regional entities uh, in terms of supporting environmental organizational development and then 
individual leadership development. And then certainly in my not-for-profit career, the latter half of 50 years of work, I spent a lot of time working with the next generation of leaders. The Student Conservation Association focuses on opportunities for young people to experience great internships and summer work experiences and year-round activities as well uh, with uh, uh, conservation and natural resource and agencies uh, that are in the business of the outdoors. So uh, I was a, a trainer, a mentor, a coach, uh, not only for my immediate team, but every year for hundreds of, of young people and directly every year for small cohorts of individuals uh, who were rotating through the experiences that were being provided. So I was doing similar kinds of work that ICL was doing in both of my two primary career jobs, which were always about human resource development and organizational development. That had to have been a great experience for you working with, you know, as you were getting older in your career and having this opportunity to work with young people. It was it's so impactful. And one of the things that I'm doing a lot of even here in retirement still, because I can't get away from it, is the, the mentoring part of that. I still have a number of mentees uh, and some new ones that have just uh, fallen upon me. Uh, last night, I actually agreed to do a, a meeting with a young woman that I met at a Congressional Black Caucus event where we were meeting with the um, new president of the board for the Sierra Club. And uh, there was a young intern who was a Sierra Club member who was there, and we got into a 30-minute conversation uh, while we were there. And uh, she wants to do a follow-up meeting with me. So it's those kinds of things where you know, I, I've got the time to do it, and I enjoy the dialogue and the opportunity to, to try to help. And she just wants to pick my brain in terms of the experiences that I've, I've had and how I worked my career path to see if there's any nuggets of wisdom. Not that I know that there are any, but certainly uh, she felt that it might be valuable for her to, to have a conversation about that. But the, the mentoring part of it is still something that has always been a very, very high motivation uh, for me. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I never had that in my career, unfortunately. I never had the kind of direct uh, mentor. I can only think of one or two people who've kind of played that role in my life directly. And I know the value of it because I've seen it work in, in, in others. But uh, when I think back, uh, there weren't kind of formal systems for doing that and the idea of networking and the idea of having a coach other than your supervisor and again, that's kind of a catch as sketch can. If you've got a good supervisor who understands the need for training and educating their staff, then you're in a good place. My sense of assessment of that is that most supervisors do a poor job of growing their staff. And organizations tend to do a poor job of that as well in terms of the investment of resources as well as the time and the effort, especially in the one-on-one -on -one relationships. That is a great point. Tell me a little bit about what you think. What is it that supervisors need? Well, I, I just think it's uh, uh, an affinity and an understanding of the value of that, of taking the time of the investment of your personal interest as well as the counsel that you can provide to another. It's a, it's a helping mentality. It's a serving kind of mentality, which I think a good supervisor has to have as a part of their kind of menu or, or the things of, that's in their bag as a supervisor and a manager and a leader, that you should always be grooming your staff and looking for every opportunity, formal and informal, uh, 
to have them grow in the position that they're in, as well as growing them toward the next opportunity that's coming. I think that's as important of a role for a supervisor, manager, or an executive or leader that they could have in terms of the human resource part of their work. But it gets cut out of the pie so frequently by time and by expense. And the investment in that by organizations and by individuals uh, always is a challenge. You show me a successful leader, one of the things that they've done is they've been generally a good developer of others because they know the value of that return. Because if you're developing your team, they're, they're more qualitative, more quantitative. They, they offer more in terms of what they bring to the table. So you get results. And so, you know, the, the time that I've spent mentoring and tutoring my own team or staff or others has always been returned to me more than what I invested in terms of the initial offering. It seems to me that when you're working with, you know, mid-level managers, people that are actually doing the supervising, one of the hardest things that I see is that, A, it's not something that's taught often. It's something that's learned over time. And that really needs to be part of the, the culture of an organization almost. Uh, I mean, you can teach certain things, but it, it has to be embedded into the organization as well. It is. It has to be important. It has to be an organization that sees it as a part of its philosophy that parallels with its mission and uh, certainly one who embraces uh, the investment. When you look at the amount of resource that's put into human resource development by most organizations, it's such a minuscule, such a small amount of money per entity uh, that uh, you, you, you wonder how people even do the maintenance of skills that they need to do their job, let alone growing toward another opportunity. So you certainly can see clearly the importance of it by seeing and looking and looking at their budgets and seeing how, what's the line item for that kind of activity within the organization. And when it's 1%, <laughs> and in most organizations it's not even 5%, that tells you something about the philosophy of the organization. That's a really good point. I mean, a, a lot of people talk about strategic planning. They talk about what's the strategy of the organization and, yeah, are we going to invest in our people? But oftentimes the, the budget or the financial plan doesn't match the strategic plan. It doesn't match it, and when times get tough, it's the first thing to go. When that, that's the time you actually should be investing more, it's hard times. But, you know, getting someone to do that when they're trying to, make the numbers match is counterintuitive in many ways but i truly believe that in tough times because you need more out of them you train them more or you develop them more or you develop the organization more you talked a little bit about the institute uh, early on in the conversation and uh, when you were contacted by your friend was that the first time you had heard about the institute uh no it was not uh actually as i was uh one time looking for an opportunity for one of my staff, I came across information on ICL and had heard about the organization just because of the allied nature of what it was doing in the work that I was doing. And I actually enrolled one of my employees in the, at that time, one of the ICL leadership development courses that ran for about a year, a guy by the name of Gary King. And Gary used that to grow himself in the organization uh, at that time and uh, in turn had another employee uh, take a similar uh, block of instruction uh, sometime later when he became a manager. 
So I was introduced to it more formally by having an employee uh, go through the leadership training of ICL at that time. Uh, also, being a not-for-profit executive, you, you know who's kind of out there in your community. And so I knew of the organization, but not intimately. And uh, so that's kind of how the introduction occurred. So I knew of it, and then a friend was on the board. You're a person of color, mm -hmm. and uh, you have can only imagine the arc of your career and the things, and, uh, things that you've experienced in terms of uh, changes in the way that we are working with uh, the minority community, in particular in conservation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's certainly been progress, but boy, there's still a lot of work still to be done. I'm actually personally investing some of my time in retirement uh, to this issue of how do we diversify the next generation of green leadership uh, from both every sector whether it's uh, public employees, uh, whether it's not-for-profit uh, leadership, or even uh, in, in, in the case of looking at uh, corporate entities as well. The career tracks that lead to gateway positions in many organizations are not ones that are highly touted to young folks who are exploring careers. They don't know about the jobs or they don't know about the opportunities or that I can do that. And I've certainly been around long enough uh, in this field that I've certainly seen the face of leadership begin to, to change, but the change is at a very, very slow place. And then it has a kind of an up and down uh, tenure to it. There are some good times and there are some some bad times. But again, uh, right now, uh, with some studies recently done, uh, the Green 2.0 assessment uh, by Dr. Uh, Dosita Taylor out of University of Michigan and the uh, Raven Group clearly shows that the face of conservation leadership is woefully lacking in its uh, diversity. And that's by every dimension of that, whether it's gender, uh, certainly whether it's people of color, orientation, we have not in any way broken through that ceiling to have uh, those who we serve who are more highly representative kind of reflect the leadership of those organizations. So a lot more work uh, needs to be done in that area. I will continue personally to try to do that, whether it's the one-on-one -on -one activities that I do or certainly by affiliating myself with groups that I think are kind of leading the charge but I know that a lot of work needs to be done to kind of move and to push and to motivate organizations and individuals to embrace the need of, of doing this. What do you think is at the root of that? And do you have a, a theory or a thought? Or well, a I think a lot of it is sometimes you're, you're just not uh, engaged in those communities. <laughs> Even though your work might be there, you don't see that body politic as one that might be representative and have the skill sets to possibly be brought to heart and developed to be leaders. And you kind of look over them. Uh, another part of it, I think, centers around the fact of uh, the lament that it just drives me crazy, I can't find them, or I don't know where they are. Now, there are enough people of color and women coming out of our educational systems. As a matter of fact, there are more women in university today than <laughs> than men. And we've got a strong network of minority institutions, uh, 
our tribal college system, uh, our uh, growing uh, two-year systems, which have a predominance of and much more diverse than four-year institutions at state and public, private. Uh, they're graduating high percentages of, of minority students. Uh, we've got to learn how to engage them and to introduce them to the opportunities that we do have. And so our recruiting strategies need to be different. The way that we do our outreach, uh, the connectivity, uh, the opportunities to develop them, the way we manage simple things like our internship programs, the uh, summer work experiences that kids might have that introduce them to natural resources and conservation and the outdoors. All of this is part and parcel to, I think, making and having an impact on young folks that they would then be willing to view that as a career choice uh, once they're having degree in hand. You know, D.C. has a pretty strong summer jobs corps program. Uh, have you worked with them at all? I'm just oh, I have spent a lot of time uh, designing some of those programs, uh, working in those uh, experiences, and I see the fruit that is uh, brought to bear. I know of so many young people who their first minimum wage job was uh, on a summer work crew in a local park, city or state or federal, in an area where I was working. And then years later, to see them now be the new leader or the new manager or the new supervisor is always a, a rewarding kind of thing, to kind of look over their shoulder and, and see them having grown to take advantage of that opportunity that had been afforded to them. There is a strong ethic of that here within the Beltway here in the Washington, D.C. and all of the jurisdictions. So it, it's doing well now. Yeah. And you've been able to see that actually come full circle. So. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can name young men and women because I've been around <laughs> long enough that 30 years ago they were the next generation and now they're the leader. They're running the same thing that they were a part of, both within organizations that I worked in as well as other groups where they were given an opportunity to see that, hey, I might be that scientist, I might be that hydrologist, I might be that oceanographer, and now they're out there leading something in a very competent way. So I, I, know, I, know, I know it can work. So as a long-term board member, what do you think the Institute's most important job is or our accomplishment? Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, what you're proud of as a board member, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk a little bit more about maybe what, uh, what you mm -hmm. see for the future for ICL. Well, uh, as I viewed ICL's mission coming in, and as I still view it today, uh, I kind of see it as being twofold, uh, focusing on the professional development of the individual and the organizational development for the uh, organization itself. Uh, I think both need to have development plans in terms of how you uh, provide opportunities for the uh, acquiring and the attainment of the necessary skills to perform, and then certainly how you continually reshape your organization as times change to be able to be mission aligned and effective in doing the work of its mission statement. Now, ICL, I think, has been at the forefront of that as it's gone to look at what I call the grassroots community, the, the local kinds of organizational leadership on the ground level. And uh, they have afforded professional development and training opportunities for emerging leaders 
and certainly have been platforms and bridges to development for those individuals. Uh, at the same time, they've assisted the organizations that these young folks come from or these new leaders come from because a lot of times people get jobs as new leaders and might not necessarily have all the requisite skills to be an executive director. And because of that, I think ICL has always been there as a great place to come and commune with other like-minded and other leaders to uh, network and to share and to grow yourself toward being a successful leader uh, within uh, your community. So where do you think ICL should be uh, looking to the future? And in terms well, I of think going forward? it certainly should remain in this area because I think it's a sweet spot. Uh, and I think there's even growing opportunity to do that. I think it does have uh, newer competitors who are out there who are doing the same thing that have come up uh, both regionally based and nationally. Uh, so that will certainly uh, be something that it needs to keep its eye on. But certainly I think being that place where that customer who is looking for executive leadership development, uh, for management development and supervisory uh, skill attainment, uh, it should still work in that. At the same time, it should be there for those organizations who also need to grow themselves to continue that as they are expanding their missions or retooling themselves to be more effective, that they're providing the kinds of tutelage and instruction that allows the leadership of those organizations to restructure their boards, to do the right hiring, to have the right focus in the work that they do and to be strategic in the way that they do that. So if they can kind of keep themselves primed and have those two feet, I think, firmly embedded within the conservation and natural resource community, uh, it'll be uh, doing a great service, especially to what I call the smaller, more local organizations out there who need this kind of service. If you were to sort of look very broadly and at a very high level about you know where the community should go in mm -hmm. the next 10 years, mm -hmm. what would be your vision? I think the challenges that we face when you have issues like climate, uh, when we have issues of water, uh, when we have issues of air that are still impacting our communities and impacting our resources in such a way that the work that many of these organizations do is still such a high priority across the board. Uh, I'm watching this current and next week's activities within the climate work that's being done uh, this week here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I spent some time yesterday at the Congressional Black Caucus where there was uh, uh, a number of sessions on climate in minority communities and issues of environmental justice uh, were being addressed. Uh, we have uh, Pope Francis coming to town next week and you know he's spoken very strongly for the challenge that we face in our planet about issues of climate. Uh, our president uh, has stepped forward in a leadership way to certainly uh, with recent decisions and designations that he's made uh, for the protection of uh, important lands and places, but also certainly uh, uh, echoing the call that we need to address issues of climate control as a key uh, focus area within the environmental movement that uh, our failure to address this uh, certainly we will we will pay dearly for it uh, down down the line now sometimes 
getting people to focus on that issue because it's more longer term and it kind of creeps up on you. The immediacy of it sometimes is, is lost. Then all of a sudden, you, you've got a Katrina <laughs> or you've got uh, a fire situation in our western in California or the water situation of the West or you've got uh, rising uh, oceans and uh, our shorelines being impacted. So these issues are, are not going away. I, I think they're going to be a much more impactful part of our lives. And so having qualified and well-trained and educated leaders from every tier, from very, very local, community-based, uh, to certainly uh, city level, to municipal, to, to state level, to our federal networks, into the not-for-profit, and then certainly within the for-profit community as we see sustainability be embraced by corporate America as a, as, as a business practice <laughs> that has value and a reward and a return on investment. All of these things will be where we need to be focusing our efforts in, in the future. Early in the conversation, you talked a little bit about the reason you are doing some mentoring is because you didn't feel you had great mentors in the past. Is there somebody that did step up, uh, stand out for you or step up for you and really uh, help you learn? And, and yeah, I, I, I did have a, a couple of folks who were, were, were valuable, but it's probably because I sought them out uh, when I think the formula should be the other way around. But if you're not getting the mentorship and the coaching and the guidance that you seek, you, you've got to be assertive. And I tell young folks that all the time. Don't sit back and wait for it to come to you. you got to flip the script and go find people who are willing and competent to play that role within your life. And if you ask, it can be quite a flattering thing to, to someone, but you might need to be the ask. Do the ask, and, and, and that's okay. But I, I think about people like uh, former director of the National Park Service, Robert Stanton, the first African-American director of the, of the NPS, who I thought certainly was very... Uh, as I look back and reflect over my life, he's been instrumental in guiding me and leading me and challenging me uh, when I was in my governmental career. And I think uh, that paid off in terms of my progression uh, to executive level within public service. And certainly uh, I still maintain that friendship with him uh, today. In my not-for-profit leadership world, Uh, I've had one or two allies who've kind of played the mentoring and coach role for me because when I left public service, I was moving into an area where I had not done a lot of work other than some very small community-based work in my own neighborhood where I was doing some small work because there were restrictions as a federal employee in terms of what you can do in terms of being on boards and volunteer work. But as soon as I left public service, I immediately started to seek those opportunities out because they had been denied for me and I couldn't do certain kinds of things by governmental uh, regulation. Uh, And so I had a couple of uh, allies who certainly encouraged me to consider not-for-profit executive leadership as a second career. And uh, a couple of names come to mind, a guy by the name of Destry Jarvis, who had been a peer professional of mine and had been in the not-for-profit world. And he and I had worked together as partners between public and private partnerships. And then when he went into public service, I was going out. So we kind of, I helped him with his public service, and he helped me with my not-for-profit leadership service. And then finally, I credit a lot to my son, which is kind of a reverse role, uh, in the sense that I've never been one who has uh, been 
shall we say, specifically uh, talented in the technology area. And I have a, a digital native in my family that I created and grew. And uh, he was my go-to guy when I needed and I wanted to feel not embarrassed to ask the stupid question, uh, I, I went to my child. And so he became certainly someone who was certainly in my lifetime as I saw both the introduction of technology into everyone's career. Uh, I was in leadership jobs where I was spending millions of dollars every year buying technology and, and computers equipment, but certainly had no sense in terms of my own self because it was not native to me. And so uh, I recognized the value of technology in my life and challenged myself greatly to do it because it just wasn't a part of who I was coming along. And so my resource and my mentor became my child. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, Flip, thank you so much for this great conversation. I really appreciate it and really wish you well on, on your retirement. Well, hopefully it's... Uh, something that uh, certainly I won't be too far away. Uh, uh, I'm sunsetting from the board, but I've already volunteered to do a committee ad hoc. <laughs> so, again, they never let you go at ICL. <laughs> that is true. I'll say that. But, I, again, I, I want to stay connected. I want to be a part of it. I'm enjoying certainly uh, the kind of formality of retirement uh, and everything that I'm doing, and it's giving me some time to do some other things that I want to do um, locally within my community. But it's, it's allowing me to be very much uh, thoughtful in terms of how I want to invest the rest of the time I have on this earth to kind of help take care of the mother planet in, in a very positive kind of way. So I, I look forward to doing that and I look forward to supporting uh, ICL certainly as a part of that strategy uh, as I continue uh, my lifetime. Thank you. Thank you, Flip. Listening to Flip talk about the arc of his career the changes he's seen, and the description of how his work has come full circle. It's an inspiration. But more importantly, there is wisdom in the strategies that he lays out for attracting diversity into the conservation community. Thank you, Flip, for sharing your experiences with us. Keep your eye out for more great episodes coming from ICL in the field. We'll be producing more great stories from the community and highlighting the great work that is being done to support the conservation sector. We'll see you all soon.